Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. And I can't think of a better guest than today, which I interview Jason Brubaker of FilmmakingStuff.com. And now this is an excellent resource for understanding movie making in the modern age. And Jason and I first connected when he was working at Distriber, and I was just emailing um, him back and forth to get a better understanding of what was going on with the filmmaking landscape at this time. And this is about a year ago, as I was preparing to get my film, The Cube, um, out there in the marketplace. And so the concept of Distriber is basically just an aggregator. You pay a flat fee to get your movie onto iTunes, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. There was no need to have a formal distribution company in place when you just had to pay an aggregator a flat fee to be in the marketplace. And I was floored. And I had to double check myself and ask Jason, was this is as real as I thought it was? And he said, yes, it is. And that the landscape is definitely changing. So I followed Jason as he went from distributor to chill and followed him to his uh, filmmakingstuff.com where I found a wealth of resources um, in fact, I bought one of his courses, um, How to Sell Your Movie, and it was really helpful for me um, getting the cube out there and, and applying some of the things that he had taught, and so much so that I actually um, was able to become affiliate for him, so I sell it on my site, filmtuber.com. Anyhow, Jason caught the filmmaking bug when he was in college, in a, and he, went, he grew up in a really small town in the Midwest. And he saved up a few pennies after film school, and he moved to New York to work with a um, film producer there. And But he came back to his hometown, I think, to re- reconnect with some of his old film school buddies. And they decided to make a feature film that involved zombies who attacks a special needs camp. The tagline was, Sometimes Heroes Ride the Short Bus. Uh, the film's title was called The Special Dead. Now, Jason admits that they knew they were making a campy horror film, and and they made sure they never crossed the line of exploiting the special needs characters. In fact, he was contacted by several special needs programs that liked how the film showed the special needs characters as the heroes. Anyhow, like many filmmakers, Jason thought he would be able to sell it to the highest bidder and then get on with making the next film. But what happened was that the distribution offers were just terrible. Most likely, he was receiving like a very small MG, a minimum guarantee or a, a cash advance, and but he would have to sign away like you know the rights to the film for 20, 25 years. Anyway, it wasn't anything that they could really make any money out of. But at the same time, Jason's little zombie film was building a huge following online, and this was back in 2006. Um, so also, the film was being pirated. So he sent a cease and desist order to the website to tell him to stop giving the movie away for free. But when that happened, the number of followers to their own main website started to drop. <laughs> so in the process of doing this, Jason had that aha moment that this little film had garnered a real large online following, a following that he could start selling DVDs directly to. So Jason, being already privy to an entrepreneurial mindset, He saw the opportunity when it arose, and he jumped on it. So he saw that the whole landscape for film distribution had changed. And this is back in 2006, where he saw that he could make a film, build an audience online, and sell to them directly, you know, through DVDs at that particular time. 
But ever since, Jason has been evangelizing this basic concept. Make, market, and sell your film without the middleman. And that was huge for me because I was feeling the same way. Like, you know, who would really want to see this little film that I made as well? I mean, a lot of think filmmakers in that boat where they just have the equipment, they make something sort of in their backyard, and they want to see whether or not there's a market out there. And now there are methods and means to do so. So Jason launched filmmakingstuff.com to provide filmmakers with an abundance of resources to help just do that, to make, market, and sell your film without the middleman. So along with his own site, Jason had worked at Distriber, as I mentioned. That's an Indiegogo aggregation company. Um, He also spent time at Chill as the acquisitions director. Anyhow, I'll provide more links to Jason and his message of modern movie making um, in the show notes at filmtrooper.com forward slash 29, because this is episode 29. If you want to learn more about Jason, just head on over to filmmakingstuff.com. And for this interview, we sort of just jump right into the conversation because I really just enjoy just talking shop with Jason. So I don't want to spend time kind of going through all these old questions that have been asked of him before. Uh, so that's why I want to provide the other links to you in the show notes so we can just get to the meats and potatoes of the conversation. So here he is, Jason Brubaker of FilmmakingStuff.com, here on the Film Trooper podcast. What do you think about the proposal from the FCC about putting toll roads on the internet for fast lanes? Well, I think if you listen to what the FCC is saying, that's, that's not uh, what the what the verbiage is, but <laughs> that's certainly what it is for us, especially as independent filmmakers. So, um, and for listeners that might be catching this for the first time, there's a proposal out there where, uh, like you said, you know, the FCC is going to make some changes that could, in effect, eliminate net neutrality as we know it. And what that means is uh, companies that have a lot more money and a lot more power can stay powerful and and flush with cash while the little guy kind of gets smushed out. And that's something, you know, net neutrality is something that the internet offers every business um, that kind of creates an even playing field. And for years, you know, um, net neutrality has provided us smaller filmmakers with the ability to go out and source an audience and put our movie into various platforms so that it's available for streaming and download um, without interruption. But if some of this stuff goes through, what could essentially happen is depending on how you deliver your content, it could come out a lot slower. Um, Your websites and and different things that you're streaming could load a lot slower, which means that somebody that can load things quickly and provide downloads quickly or stream quickly, you know, they're going to have an advantage. Um, And so what, once again, what that would mean is if you wanted to do business, you would have to partner with one of these bigger companies and, and in a worst case scenario that puts us back to square one where we once once again are slaves to whatever sort of policies and and um, you know, business relationships that are one sided you know who knows you know what the ripple effect is um, but it certainly isn't cool in my opinion um, I, I think you know uh, some of these bigger companies certainly think it is cool. Um, <laughs> And and so, you know, my thought is uh, let's let's maintain net neutrality. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, the advent of just this past year since we talked, I think like I first connected with you in um, February t- uh, 
2013, and it was when you were working with Distributor. God, so much has changed in the past year, going from the explosion of aggregators to try to get your movie onto you know iTunes, Netflix, Hulu, whatnot. Just paying a f- flat fee that was crazy cheap compared to what it used to be, and then all of a sudden the explosion of all these um, direct distribution uh, platforms, um, like you said, uh, Pivot Share, uh, Vimeo on Demand. Uh, VHX, uh, TV, Distrify, I mean, there's tons. Um, and I knew you were doing some work with Chill. If things r- remain the same with the internet, that we're able to maintain some sort of net neutrality where we don't have the gatekeepers, which we're crossing our fingers, which that doesn't happen over the course of the next few years, where we are, again, enslaved to major corporations that have the control over, you know, um, th- those fast lanes in order to get content to consumers, do you have like a future prediction or where you see things going? Um, I know you've been preaching it or uh, uh, say preaching it, but you've been evangelizing. You've been bringing to people's uh, filmmakers attention since 2010, I, if I believe, if I'm correct. Even earlier than that. I mean, uh, I made my first feature back in 05, 06, and we went to market in 07. Um, and that was the first uh, for me, whenever you make your first feature um, that as you know, um, creates a big learning curve and, and you, you pick up a lot of uh, skills that you didn't know you had. And for me, um, I'd always had an affinity for internet marketing. So it just made sense that we would put our first feature on Amazon and drive targeted traffic to our point of sale. Um, and we were able to transact pretty effectively. And that changed the paradigm for me. I, I no longer at that point even thought about going out and finding a traditional acquisitions executive to pick up our movie and and distribute it through the traditional channels, right? Um, And so I've been evangelizing this idea that if you're you're ambitious enough, if you're uh, entrepreneurial enough to go out and create a product, then the other part of it is you should really think about who's going to actually buy the product, and that's your audience, right? And so with, with that idea... And, and the fact that everything happens online, it just made sense to me that, oh, well, I could get, you know, this right up in Fangoria. Our first feature was a film, uh, was a horror movie. I could get this right up in Fangoria, drive people to our website. They click the buy now button and everybody's happy. And I think for the smaller filmmaker, that is advantageous and awesome because what it means is you can make smaller movies um, and you don't have to recoup as much if you're, if you're making a low budget movie, you only have to sell X number of units to get out of the red and into the black and all that kind of stuff. So, um, introducing net neutrality to the equation means that, you know, a lot of the companies that you mentioned with the exception of the big corporations, uh, they're, they're probably having similar discussions, which is what does this mean for us? What does this mean for streaming? Um, and you know, I don't. I don't particularly like the idea that, that things are going to get more challenging. I feel like we already have enough challenges as it is <laughs> um, to throttle the internet and, and slow things down for certain people. Is is you know um, that could potentially be bad for business. The flip side of that is, and and you mentioned some of the startups I worked for. I worked for that company Chill, and um, we were a platform that was supplying tools to filmmakers to help them source an audience and transact and. We also had merchandise upsells, and we were doing a lot of stuff that was really pioneering um, at the time. Um, all of that stuff could have been affected with uh, some of these, some of this throttling capability. But what I learned from working with that startup and some of the other startups I worked with is entrepreneurial people 
are always trying to solve bigger and bigger problems. So it sort of seems to me, you know, not that not that I have a crystal ball, but you know, if net neutrality becomes a thing in the past, then one would imagine that you're going to figure out different ways to um, compress files and send them through the pipes faster. Um, so you know, there's going to be different things on the software side, on the hardware side. Perhaps there's going to be people that are going to come up with new ways to sort of bypass the pipes. Um, in both of these instances, though, I, I have to admit I'm talking a little bit out of my butt. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not a software engineer, and, and I'm certainly not Mark Cuban, so I don't have you know that kind of skill set. But but one would surmise just based on the innovations that have come in the past, because you have to remember, you know, back in 2000, how slow the internet was and how streaming media was just sort of like, oh, it was non-existent in a sense. I mean, people mm -hmm. were trying a few things, but if you remember, you'd sit there forever and you finally have to download something and you would really have to be committed to whatever you were trying to download because there wasn't any like clicking around. Right. Um, and gosh, that that's my biggest fear that things are going to go back to something like that. But then the silver lining is if it gets that bad and that problematic, then it's going to force other people to come up with better and better solutions which, in a sense, I believe the optimist in me believes that that could, in fact, circumvent all this stuff. Um, but, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm being very optimistic with not a whole lot of skill in terms of how to program things or, or build huge networks. Right. You know, I don't know if you've been watching the HBO uh, series from Mike Judge, uh, Silicon Valley. They're in like three, four episodes right now. But the whole premise is, is genius. <laughs> the guy comes up with this technology and he's trying to start this company called Pied Piper, which is essentially that. It's this uh, amazing new algorithm that uh, compresses data to like the fastest you know possible way. So that's the whole show is based off like a really fun tongue-in-cheek of what it's like in that town. And uh, it's worth checking out if you had a chance to see it. Pretty raunchy. But it's still, it's still, it's pretty dang funny. Well, I, I actually have been watching it, and, and like I said, so, so I've worked for a couple different tech startups, um, Chill being one of them. And while I can't say that it's a hundred percent accurate, um, the different characters in that show do reflect um, a modern tech company. Where one side of it, one side of the company, it Chill's a great example. So one side of Chill was was guys like me that were outgoing and we're making phone calls and we're having meetings with people. And then the other side were like these super smart software engineer guys that wore headphones and, and only communicated through Skype during working hours. <laughs> I mean, after work, you could you'd go out and have a beer and they were all great guys, but you know, they're, they, they, they were nerds. And, you know, I, I guess I'm nerdy in my own way. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but you know, different skill sets. So these tech companies are pretty interesting that way. You have the business development side on the one on the one side, it's trying to sell the product, and then you got the other people that are trying to develop it to solve bigger and bigger problems. So, um, <laughs> Silicon Valley is a funny show, and and it's pretty accurate. I've I've actually worked with um, at other startups where I've worked. I've actually worked with, you know, the visionary types. Um, I, I don't want to get too esoteric for people that aren't watching the show, but right. the last episode where the guy is like counting the sesame seeds, and out of that he he comes up with this whole you know extrapolates all these ideas of what's going to happen in the future and. Um, I've worked with people like that. It's it's a pretty interesting situation. It's really funny. Let me ask you: the the dream was to be you know in Hollywood, I think, or be somewhat of a star, you know, either a, a film director or, or an actress or something like that. I'm wondering if the new millennium, new gold rush, is everybody trying to become an entrepreneur? 
um, now that we see like, you know, uh, Zuckerberg and all these uh, kids with hoodies and stuff like that, making something that's totally disrupting the world, but changing it and making globs of globs of money. I wonder if that is the new um, gold rush. Well, I think I think it's a gold rush for guys like you and me that, you know, I I certainly uh, when I went to New York City right after college, uh, I grew up in a small rural working class background. So growing up, like the idea of being an entrepreneur, the idea of being a wealthy person always seemed like a far off kingdom. It didn't even make sense. It wasn't even part of my paradigm, right? Yeah. Um, I, I read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad that completely shaped the way that I think about money and entrepreneurship. And I would recommend anybody listening to this to grab a copy and read it today. Um, and I read it in like a sitting, like I went to this party one night, I saw it on the shelf, I started reading it. I was so intrigued that I went home early to finish the book. And then I've read it multiple times since, and it's really shaped my thinking. But I I went to New York city after college and, and I found work working alongside a very entrepreneurial producer. And this was a time, um, in the early 2000s, long before you had the kind of distribution that we have these days, which is why I became such an evangelist. But we would make, we would, we would uh, write business plans and go out and pitch to investors and raise money and, and get these movies made. And then they'd have a really good festival run and they would just die short. Um, but during that time, the whole, um, the whole appeal of just putting together a business plan, like I'd never even thought that way that you could just create an idea and go out and raise money and, and create this product. Um, but back then, like I said, you, you, you got stopped because you'd go to market and they'd be like, we don't want to take this to the market. And then you have this product that just collects dust. In that case, it was a feature film. Um, I think entrepreneurship has always been part of everything that we've done, in a, especially in this country, to shape the entire country. I, I just think, you know, if, if you're like me and you come from a background where, you know, your parents worked really hard and, and you're the first guy to go to college and, you know, all the different things that happen to shape your worldview, you know, um, I think it's new for us. It mm-hmm. certainly feels like a gold rush. But this country was founded on on people trying to solve bigger and bigger problems. So, um, you know, I, I like the Silicon Valley uh, show because I, I think, again, it, it really um, – I can relate to it. But But it's funny – that once you get in the scene, like here in California, in Los Angeles, they have this they have this community called Silicon Beach, which hmm. has been best described to me as the people from Silicon Valley that got tired of the weather because it's always colder up in the San Francisco area. So they come down to L.A. Um, but I always thought that the the least creative thing you could call it is Silicon Beach since uh, beaches are usually made out of silicon. Um, <laughs> but that undone. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's my nerd humor for the day. But you know, the point being is the thing that has changed for us that does create this gold rush is the idea that from your bedroom with a computer and some know-how, you can take an idea from concept to you know, a, a real practical application if you know the right kind of people and you know the pieces that you have to put together to do it. And you can do it at a very small scale. And if the idea is scalable and it has, you know, you have the ability to go out and raise money and do all these other things, um, I think that's been happening in business forever. You know, whenever I give my talks, I use the example of starting your own yogurt shop. Um, we now have the equivalent in independent filmmaking where, hey, I got this great idea for a movie. Let's go, you know, do a crowdfunding campaign. Let's go out and shoot this thing, and let's see if we can't make this a business. When I first connected with you, and we were talking via email very briefly, 
I mean, it was a re- revelation to, for me because as as well because I was like, wait a minute, if you're connecting the dots this way, this this means a complete shattering of the way things have been done for so many years. And I have to agree with you. I also read uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad a few years ago, and it definitely rattles your mindset to be like, oh, okay, so this is how the game is played, and you're <laughs> like, you're, you're like, okay. So how do I fit into this whole game? You know, how do I structure it? And then because of that book, it sends you down a path of like, well, how do I answer these questions, you know, so that I understand how that ga- the game is rigged. When you're open to that and seeing in the past year with digital distribution, then your brain goes, oh, wait a minute, this is all connecting now. So like, how do we put it all together? And I guess my question is for you is, what needs to happen for a filmmaker nowadays what do they need to do to change their their teachings or what is what are film schools needed to be doing to um change the the dynamics what's really going on out there um look i I think what's going on out there is the same thing that's always been going on and you you mentioned something in an earlier question too about uh the dream of moving to hollywood and, and being famous and all these kinds of things um i'm guilty of it i've had some times where i've like imagined all the you know fame and fortune of of going around the world and seeing my movie on the big screen um and really being able to to experience that coolness factor right um and that's how i felt after college but after working through all of this stuff and, and sort of seeing the industry and seeing how it works, um, my yogurt shop analogy isn't too far from what it is. It, it's it's sexy, right? It's a very sexy business from the outside perspective, but it, it's also a very challenging business. And I think what happens is a lot of people either if they don't get caught up in the in the in, in the fame part, then they're actually focused on work. But their part of work is is for some people. They feel accomplished if they just go out and buy the latest and greatest camera or audio equipment or lighting equipment and they put it in their closet and they're like, I'm a filmmaker and this is going to date me ever so slightly. But right after college, um, I was working in my hometown doing these small market film and television uh, commercials and at the back of the production company, they had this Airy BL 16-millimeter camera with a couple rolls of film. And I was like, oh, man, if only I could own that camera, then I could be a filmmaker. And I saved up all summer to buy that, that camera and a couple rolls of film. Um, <laughs> and then I shot a movie on a weekend. And then I saved up for like the remainder of, of the winter to um, get enough money to get the film processed and transferred to video just so I could edit on what was then a very slow computer – if you can imagine, um, and all of that, you know, to say it's a heck of a lot easier now to make a movie. And back then, because it was so challenging, you just knew you're always trying to solve the problem. Like, oh, I need to get that camera so that I can save money, or I need to get that film, or I need to do like a one light transfer with my film to video. Um, now I think people still have that same mindset where they're like, oh, I got to get that camera, or I got to get those lights. When in fact, you could very easily go out and, you know, cameras are so much less expensive. You don't have to get your film processed to get a really good picture and get cinematic results. But heck, you could even go and borrow a camera or you could rent a camera, camera really cheaply because they're so plentiful. Yet still, still people are focused on this. I got to have this gear. I got to do this, 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 and this. When from my perspective, based on everything that I've learned through the years, bigger challenge and the most important challenge is actually having a story to tell that people care about. So I think one of the things that the schools fall short of is they're still selling this dream. And 
there is a dreamy aspect to it, but for some people, you know, there's a dreamy aspect to starting any business. So I don't want to focus on that so much. I think what the focus should be instead of like looking at the dream or filling your closet with equipment is again, telling the story, but, but using the tools that are available to tell the story that you can tell today. So for example, when I was at chill, we were working with some of these famed YouTubers. Um, and these are people that have just literally broke out their camera phone in some situations, recorded themselves, uploaded it to YouTube and kept doing it day after day after day and have aggregated audiences of 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, in some cases over 100,000 people that tune in to watch their videos each week. And now that's super powerful. I mean, if you look at um, Disney just made an acquisition of one of the big MCNs, that should tell you that there's more power in the people that can source an audience versus the guy that has the latest and greatest camera gear or the idea that someday they're going to make a movie. It's like, dude, what are you waiting for? Just go make that three-minute movie and upload it to YouTube and see if you can get any attraction. If you can't, start over and do it again and again and again and again and build that content so that you eventually have that audience that says, hey, I'm going to go do this Kickstarter campaign. Please follow me over here. I'm going to finally make this movie. You know, that's where the excitement is, I think. And that's where the film schools should be focused is like, hey, guys, let's quit fooling around trying to raise this $80 million movie so you can work for the studios and get the five jobs that are available a year. Let's instead do what we can do today, create some good content, tell a great story, get a great audience, and then leverage that audience later to go to the studios and be like, look, I got 100,000 people following me. Will you finance this movie? You know, that's such a much more powerful way to play it. Yeah, exactly. We've had this discussion before, but it's um, we're kind of referring to it like camera porn, and it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's but it's but you made a really great point. It's at the beginning stages of the filmmaking process. We just humans in general, we love like equipment lists, and we love the magazines that come out, like with the addition of like here's all the latest gear guide, or even if you get the B and H photo and video catalog sent to you. It's like, ooh, you know, it's like you just you open it up and you see all the wonderful toys you can play with because you mentioned that the filmmaker is at their most excited state at that moment of like, I have access to all this amazing uh, equipment or I can have access to this amazing equipment or I could own that equipment and that could give me the potential to do all these wonderful things I always wanted to do. So the excitement is so great at that beginning stage, which is why a lot of other blog posts and other website resources do so well if they're focused on gear because that's where a majority of the interest of filmmaking comes in at the beginning stages. But like you were mentioning, your yogurt shop, um, analogy, which is like, you still got to do the work when it gets down to it, you know, finding a story or something to say that would actually serve an audience that is worth aggregating, worth building and worth serving. And by the time a filmmaker goes through the process of making their film, not quite turn out the way they want it to <laughs> majority of the time. And, um, and they're almost depleted. So you were mentioning that a lot of people, uh, filmmakers come to you at sort of, unfortunately, a depleted stage of things, which is like, I made the film. How do I get it sold? And I know it's 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 disheartening because you're like, ah, if we could just have start from the beginning, you know, <laughs> knowing that film production is no longer a barrier because, like you said, you can grab any gear, even your iPhone or anything like that, and start making content that can connect with an audience that is no longer a barrier and there's no longer a distribution barrier, but like, like you mentioned. So the, the new hurdle being that 
we must become marketers. And um, as you mentioned, we are now in the business of building an audience. Is that correct? Or what was the, what's the tagline that you use again? Um, yeah, whenever, thanks for asking, whenever I give these talks, I always make people to re repeat after me, you know, my, my audience is my business without an audience. I have no business. And what I'm effectively saying is like, look, you know, stop focusing on like five years from now when you're finally going to make your movie like that, that model's dead. <laughs> your business right now is sourcing and aggregating an audience. And as I mentioned earlier, that begins today. Quit waiting around to make your perfect movie, make the movie you can make right now. Um, with the resources that you have now, you know, and, and so what I want to see is more and more people creating product and getting product out there. And I think YouTube's a great example of doing that. Um, because the tools are available to you today for like a two, three minute movie, and you can leverage that and build an audience based on that. And you can hone your craft based on that. Um, so, uh, you know, what I run into a lot of times and, 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 and look, you know, my last role, I was working professionally as the manager of acquisitions. So I was oriented towards a world where I would I would go out um, every every uh, Monday and, and Wednesday. We would have a content meeting at the company um, for about two hours where we would look through trailers that we found and, um, you know, give feedback on filmmakers and what we think and how we think we could market these certain things. Um, so that was the old orientation where you're looking for content that's already available where I think the real power is is um, trying to think about your audience and understanding a marketing strategy even before you get into production. Unfortunately, you know, going back to your earlier question about film schools, it sure would be great if they forced every student to to do some market research before they actually made the movie. I mean, that doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't guarantee the movie's good. Studios have been trying to do that kind of market research for years. So, there's no like magic bullet out there, but it at least gets you thinking. You know, if you're making a movie about purple pine cones, there's only a few people in the world that would care about that potentially. Right. right. It's interesting. Um, when I saw what you guys were doing at Chill, I was like, oh man, this is amazing because with the things that we just mentioned, being that film production is no longer a barrier, film distribution is no longer a barrier, but the next barrier is marketing and, and aggregating an audience, building an audience. This concept of the film distribution companies will have to evolve, um, I'm thinking, in the future where they become essentially marketing companies. Um, so those distribution companies that will be the most successful will be not only the ones who can attain, uh, retain, or, or sort of become sort of talent agents for cert certain film products or whatnot, but able to supersize the marketing efforts of that. I mean, there's this whole concept with independent film the economics are, have always been uh, based off, or at least the last, you know, I don't know how many years, maybe 30-something years, of um, this concept of foreign pre-sales. An indie producer packages a film with a known cast, known director, brings it to the foreign sales um, buyers, and they can get like a promise note saying, you know what, your package that you brought to us, I think we can probably give you $3 million pre-sales because I think I, we can sell that through all the different channels we have in our foreign markets. And so they take that sort of pseudo promise note, take it to a bank loan uh, to get it you know, matched. They make the film for the three million and they also maybe make some of their money back depending on what states they go to to get tax incentives. So they get you know that deducted. So by the time they sell it to the foreign pre-sale buyers, they get, you know, they've already made their money. And then the independent producer in a sense is just doing all this work to get his or her producing fee, 
which could be anywhere from, you know, 800,000 to a couple million or whatever it is that the deal set up. So whether the movie does well or not, all the individuals involved get their fee, you know? So the question is, if Netflix does indeed go international, and so then globally everyone will have access to, you know, a huge movie library which they don't already have already, but the role of the foreign buyer or the, or the pre-sales money could have be in danger of just getting imploded, which, which means that um, the in, independent film sector could get, you know, also implode. Which means, <laughs> so like I'm not too sure exactly where that's going. So am, am I right to sort of assess that sort of uh, concept of what I've been um, reading? Uh, I think you know, given everything that you just said, you, you're right with you're correct with a future perspective. And and you know, Netflix aside, more and more content is going digital. There's still an archaic notion of territories, right? So. Right now, when you sell a movie and you sell digital rights, the digital rights are actually split up territory to territory. So even if you use an internet platform in, say, France, for example, that is that internet platform is going to have this thing called geo-blocking, which is going to say only you know a French IP address can pick up this movie. Of course, you know the nerds in this audience know very quickly that that you could use an IP or you could you could. Um, uh, um, use a gosh, it just proxy escaped server, right? a proxy yeah. server, yeah, to change your IP address, and suddenly you can watch all of that content, um, and that's taking place in in the very small scale for the most nerdy of people. Um, but I will say, you know, right now I'm doing some consulting um, in rights management with some distribution companies, and and I will tell you that the market is still pleasant in foreign territories. Um, even with things going more and more digital because there's still a lot of like television outlets and different things like that that say, okay, well, there's some other ways to monetize content. Um, it's going to be, you know, in years to come, it's going to be interesting if they still hold this idea of like, okay, you're on an internet platform, but you're geo-blocked. I mean, that seems kind of goofy um, because it's the World Wide web. But then again, now we're talking about the, the degradation of net neutrality. And, and so who knows what kinds of things are going to happen in the future. Um, but to your point about foreign pre-sales, from what I understand, there's still some money out there for proven concepts led by a proven team. But for the average first-time filmmaker, um, unless you have those kind of relationships already set up, built on years of trust, you know, it's kind of the catch-22. You actually have to make some content that people care about. And I've experienced that a little bit with our first feature film, the zombie movie. Um, you know, once we put it on Amazon, there was an interest because we were doing pretty well on Amazon. So um, one guy in particular hounded me for a while to, to get me to give up the German rights um, for an upfront advance. Now, that's not the same as pre-sales, but it does tell me that there's money to be made in the foreign markets. And there's certainly, you know, at, at present, there's like 400 distributors right now that are basing a majority of their business um, by selling rights to various territories all around the world. And, you know, not just the territories, but ancillary markets like airplanes and all sorts of different things that you and I wouldn't normally think about. Um, there, there's so there's opportunity out there, but trying to get the money up front at the same time being an unknown with a bunch of, you know, no talent attached to your, to your movie, that's, that's really, really challenging. So, 
you know, um, I, I guess my big response is, is I think you're on the right track. I, and we're all certainly have those thoughts as well. Um, but I think there's still probably a decade of good money to be made in the traditional sense, even though things are going digital. I mean, the other part that changes is now you don't have all the shipping costs. Um, there's a lot of content delivery um, services out there that deliver content. There's a lot of rights management software out there that tells, um, that can potentially tell a distributor and an acquisitions guys um, and the sales guys, you know, what rights are available and when and where could we sell these and, and what markets can we uh, take advantage of? Because, you know, there's tons and tons of different territories out there. And it's kind of interesting, you know, in the traditional sense that these guys, through relationships, oftentimes as quick as saying, here's our standard contract, you know, they sell a movie for this territory or they'll group like 300 movies together and sell them for, you know, dollars, right? Like a couple hundred dollars <laughs> a movie. Yeah. But you do that enough times all around the world, it, it starts to be real money. Now, as that trickles down to the filmmaker, you know, that's where it gets really iffy because now after everybody's taking their cut and you got 10 middlemen in the way of your money, you know, it's, it's back to that traditional like, oh, thanks for that. $150 check for this quarter. Where's all their other money? Right. Well, all the other money, um, some of it gets caught up in creative accounting, but you know, for a lot of these distributors, because I've worked with them, um, they're legitimately trying to, to move a business in an ever increasing, increasingly disrupted, challenging market. So, um, you know, it, it's going to be interesting how things evolve. If you could build a company to, to solve this need, would the ultimate company be like, okay, we have, we're able to vet some very talented filmmakers that come in that we could see that we could build or help build their career as long as well, maybe they sign a contract where they sign with you, which is like this entity that's going to handle the PR marketing um, through all these different channels. So that way you're, you're able to sort of maintain just the best of the best or invest in this or sort of like the filmmakers you want to be part of that team. And it's probably, probably a stupid question because people are like, well, that's kind of like what they did before. But I'm just seeing that maybe what is the future of film? Because there's so much dialogue out there right now that everybody's jumping to like long form television because you get a chance to um, uh, build a longer brand or a deeper brand that people are more invested in. Um, obviously, there's a lot of web series that pop up, but um, and only a few of those actually translate into something that has a, a very loyal following. Where television seems to be breaking the mold left and right, and being the mainstay of what makes Netflix, you know, um, work. So the the future of just the standalone independent film, the hour and a half, two hour film, um, I don't know if it's in danger or not. Maybe also because the need to be that format of an hour and a half or two hours to fit into that old confines of the cinemaplex, you know, where you need to like, we need to push people out so we can get more people in with digital. There's doesn't necessarily have to be so constrained to those time frames. And I'm just curious of what your thoughts are, maybe what the future is, or if there's a future company or something like that, you would love to see or be part of if you, if somebody threw down a huge chunk of change, like here's like, you know, your start startup fund. Well, it's amazing, you know, um, at, after Chill, so it's it's quite a few months after the fact, and, and um, I've been out on various job interviews uh, <laughs> with with different distributors and different marketing companies that are trying to solve all these problems that you mentioned. Um, and there's everybody's running around trying to figure out exactly what it is that they need to do. 
Um, but it does go back to that one core element, which is how do you either source an audience or work with people that have already sourced an audience. So um, one one example is I had an interview with with a really, really, really well-known distribution company. Sorry, I'm going to be a little cryptic here. Um, that's, that's fine. And, and they made a partnership with another company that has already sourced a very specific niche audience so that they can go out and sell merchandise to this audience well beyond the content. So content's just one piece of the puzzle anymore. It's the old like George Lucas thing like, oh, I want to also sell action figures and T-shirts. You know, that's very real. And that's some of the stuff that we had some initial data on at, over at Chill where we were where we were trying to say, okay, you want to buy the movie? Um, you know, I picked up a, a surf documentary and I found that a large majority of people didn't just buy the movie, but they bought the $15 hat that went with the movie. And we were selling that the movie at a premium. So now one person's transacting at $30 to see a movie and get a hat. Um, that's significant. So you're going to see more and more of people creating content that's, that's you know, meeting the needs of, of various niche audiences out there. Um, and, you know, t- also to your point, about what you're describing as a mini studio or, or a modern movie studio, you know, people are hitting the nail on the head. So long form content isn't necessarily the most valuable out there. You mentioned TV, that's one, but we're going to see more and more people that are aggregating. I, I keep talking about the folks on YouTube, but more importantly, um, directly to your point, these companies that are out there, they're called MCNs, which are multi-channel networks. And to tell you how powerful these guys are, um, what they do is they go out and they aggregate a lot of famed YouTubers, people that have these huge followings, and they get them all to come into this multi-channel network so that, you know, in a sense, it, it is much like a traditional TV network, except now you have all these people, they're piggybacking YouTube, and you have all these YouTubers that have already sourced an audience. And what's happening now is they're trying to say, okay, well, YouTube supplies revenue through advertising and, and sharing ad revenue. But what else could these guys do? And that was our question at Chill. So we got together with the folks from uh, this movie called Camp Dakota, starring three famed YouTubers. And we actually, you know, built a movie up around that concept. Um, Chill was part of the initial marketing. It's since gone over to uh, its own iTunes now. And and it was on VHX for a while. um, And I believe they still are. The point being is that is a very real world example of how you can take people that have a huge following, you can cast them in your movie, and you can effectively bring some of that audience with you to make the whole project successful. So and one, one final point about these MCNs, you know, Maker Studios was purchased from Disney or purchased by Disney for $500 million. I mean, that's pretty significant. And if they hit certain benchmarks, it's going to be closer to a billion dollars, you know, what does that tell us? Disney is purchasing a company that has aggregated people who in a large part make web series. So I, I think that should point a little bit towards the future. And, and, and by the way, Disney's not the only studio that has these kinds of aspirations. It's happening out there. Um, you know, so for the smaller independent filmmaker, you better darn well cast some people that have huge Twitter followings at the very least. You know, um, and and uh, preferably somebody that has some some YouTube juice, somebody that um, you know is is semi famous and and can bring something more to the movie than just a great performance. If yeah. you want to, you know, look at it like a business. Yeah, you. It's funny you were mentioning about the surf documentary, and I know that you're also like um, an avid skateboarder or had been, you know, growing up. 
Um, anybody who's, you know, a kid growing up involved with sort of, you know, extreme sports of any kind, you know, surfing, skateboarding, uh, snowboarding, and now it's BMX and all this kind of stuff. Sure. It's interesting to see how the dynamics of the extreme sports industry work or the apparel industry uh, because you'll have – you know, companies like Quicksilver or Hurley or some these bigger entities or even Nike, knowing that they needed to purchase, uh, again, a stake of the, um, the extreme sports market. They bought Hurley to expand their market that way. But the way it works out is all these kids, all they want to do is like skate, you know, or surf or snowboard, you know, whatever it might be. Like, they just want to be the rock star doing that and be really good at it. And if they get really good at it, they get sponsored and they get gear and they get, you know, shipped to different contests or comps and signings and doing videos. So they, they live this dream until maybe they get hurt. <laughs> and then and then the next, you know, but the industry that gives them the, the latitude to to live this dream, but they, you know, the company is able to promote them to sell this dream to the rest of the world. Like, hey, we've got the best team or like the this is what they look like and wearing our gear or this is the gear that they use when they you know come and go then you know the next generation is right behind them and so it's just this machine that kind of happens and i see very similar things essentially with the music industry essentially with the, the filmmaking industry it's like these filmmakers work so hard they labor just to make this piece of art they get picked up and either they're part of that machine or, you know, there's a, there's somebody right behind them. It doesn't matter because, like, these larger entities just need to keep pumping out that dream to the next wannabe coming up. So it is helpful to kind of get that perspective because at the end of the day, I'm sure you get this a lot, which is a lot of filmmakers just want to go, I just want to make a film, you know. I just I would love to be able to make a living just making one little thing after another little thing and not have to worry about all this business stuff. But to be successful, you have to have an understanding of how all that stuff works. Yeah, yeah, I think so to the point. I mean, all industry, right? Uh, when, I, when I took the job at Chill, we, we were having a similar conversation, and I really debated whether or not I, I wanted to go to Chill because, you know, my whole motto has been make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. And then to be hired on as the manager of acquisitions where, in effect, I was the middleman <laughs> saying, hey, come put your movie on on the Chill platform, and, and we can take you out to iTunes and all that kind of stuff. Um, that really – it was like a philosophical challenge for me. I was like, huh, does that change my identity? Now, obviously, it was a great company working with great people funded in part by William Morris Endeavor. It was a much bigger kind of um, stepping stone for me, and I had to do it, right? And I think we treated all the filmmakers well, and, and we really got them some good tools, and it was a good run while, while it lasted um, with the company. Yeah, definitely. But, but along, you know, all of that stuff to say, we were constantly trying to solve that problem. Like, how do we make, how do we, how do we solve the marketing problem? How do we solve the audience aggregation problem for these filmmakers that, in a sense, just want to make a movie? So I, I think, you know, there's still that independent artist in me, right? Even though I'm always talking about business and stuff, I'm still concerned with like watching really good stuff. And, and I'm still crossing my fingers that, you know, the next filmmaker is going to come along. I, I love it when they send me emails and they're like, Jason, you know, I read your book like a few years ago and it completely changed my life. And I made this movie and it, it was an awesome, you know, that kind of thing. Or, or even, you know, talking with you uh, a few years after you've gone through the whole distribution thing, only to circle back and say, hey, things are changing out there. You know, <laughs> yeah. we, we were trying to solve some big problems. And, you know, I, I think I, I think I can distill it down to, to that simple thing I keep saying that if you are a filmmaker and you're not so concerned with this business stuff, well, just 
quit waiting around and start making some content that you think is interesting and start throwing it up on YouTube. Um, only because, you know, I, I keep mentioning YouTube, but it's such, um, now what was, what was that movie when, when, when I was, a, a younger, um, oh, there was that movie about, uh, Wayne, it was Wayne's world, right? Yeah. Wayne's world. These guys set up a TV station in their basement. And I thought that was the coolest thing. Like, how do you do that? And, and, you know, this was, I think in the late eighties, maybe nineties sometime that technology didn't exist. So for Wayne's world to like set this up, it was like such a cool premise in a movie like, Oh, they have their own Wayne, you know, Wayne's world out of their basement. Awesome. And now I'm like, well, everybody can do that. Everybody can set up a TV (laughs) station in their house and start creating really cool content. I'm just wondering why more and more quote unquote filmmakers aren't doing it. And I think they're doing it because they're afraid nobody, they're afraid they're not good enough. They're afraid nobody's going to care. They're afraid they're going to suck. Um, and to that, I say, just look at some of my movies. All of them pretty much suck, um, <laughs> but some have been pretty, you know, financially okay. And that's, that's the important factor here. So if you don't get your work out there and if you don't hone your craft, then, you, you know, everything you and I talk about all day, Scott, is a moot point because, you know, I can't stop a filmmaker from filling their closet with gear. All I can tell them is, hey, take a look at some of those famous YouTubers right now that um, – in fact, a really good movie to watch. We had it on chill for a while was uh, a movie called Please Subscribe by the filmmaker Dan Doby. Oh, yeah. Everybody should watch that. That's over – right now they have it on Indie Rain, yeah, um, yeah. which is another platform. Watch that movie because I think it will give you a really good insight in terms of how this YouTube generation is working. And because – I've been so film and independent film oriented my whole life or well, my whole adult career. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of lost sight and I never really attributed much value to these YouTubers. And now after, you know, working on um, with the guys and doing, doing the whole camp Dakota thing and some of the initial promotion around that, Oh my gosh, like that solves a major problem because now you're working with people that are already YouTube celebrities that have a whole bunch of people, uh, a whole audience of people that are used to watching videos. So why wouldn't you cast them in your movie? You know, so, so the mandate is cast famous YouTubers and have a YouTube channel and continually make product. I want to see filmmakers make at least a, a two minute movie every week, if not every day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and because you can, and so, Oh, I can't do it. I don't have the right lighting gear. I don't have the right camera. Well, now we're going back to independent filmmaking 101 back when I had to shoot on 16 millimeter film saying like, okay, well, I don't have all this great equipment. I don't have all these great props. So what story can I tell with the resources I have right now? And it's just amazing to me that everybody out there right now with their camera phone has the ability to produce results that are far better than the things I could have produced 10 years ago. And they're not. And they have a distribution channel that's global you know, YouTube in this sense, but they're not using it. So, you know, I, it's, it's hard to, um, it, wow. I, I really got enthusiastic about that, but, <laughs> no, it's, but for, it's, it's good for good reason, man. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I had worked at PlayStation for many years, so I had access to all this amazing equipment and, and it's taken me a, a, a lot of years just to kind of find a story. I'm going to be, and I think a lot of filmmakers at the place where, they have the technical aspects where they have access to stuff where they can make something, like you said. They can just get out there and make something. Um, and for me, the hard part was I was always trying to reverse. Oh, what are you... okay, no problem. I saw that. Um, real quick. I, I was trying to be subtle and, and let you know that I have a meeting coming up, but uh, <laughs> but you stop. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I was trying to wrap it up here. Um, 
I think the bottom line was just like sometimes not having something to say. And what we're seeing is uh, a lot of independent documentaries are doing very well because they have a specific topic that solves a specific need for a specific audience that they're able to aggregate and assemble an audience and, and rally around a cause that has something more life to it than just the film. What's very difficult are these uh, independent sort of genre films. You know, if you're doing a drama or a comedy and, and things like that, they don't necessarily have – they don't have the propensity to have a long tail like these documentaries do. With that said, is sometimes the hardest thing as you being an independent artist yourself, an independent filmmaker, you get to this place sometimes that you creatively just go, I, I just want to make this. It doesn't make any business sense whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it doesn't line up with any particular audience. But sometimes there's this need to just like, you know, barf out this like creative expression. And um, being that the tools are so inexpensive, like you said, just make it, throw it up onto the, one of the largest search engines around YouTube, and see if you will, you can find an audience. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more in that sense. And and to your point about documentaries, I mean, you and I will have to have a whole other conversation about that, but. Uh, some of the most successful films I've worked with are documentaries, which is funny because if you go back even five years ago, um, before the whole Michael Moore movement, it seemed like documentaries weren't the most profitable kind of movie. But because they can be done cheaply and if you focus on a subject matter that people care about, well, you already have a built-in audience. You already have like a nice little hook for a journalist to go out and, and write up about your movie. And like you said, there's there's all sorts of ancillary um, – marketing opportunities. So if you look at the guy that did fat, sick and almost dead, I think I have the title, right? Mm -hmm. um, think, yeah. You know, there's a guy that I, I'm pretty, I've heard this rumor and I, I don't know Joe cross personally, but I, but the rumor was he's such a good business guy that he went in with the movie with the idea that this movie was going to help him sell juicers. Um, I, I don't think that's the case, but by the end of that movie, I certainly joined his community and I certainly bought a juicer. So there's something to be said for that. So he's doing some affiliate merchandise marketing after the fact. And wow, that's powerful stuff. So, um, you know, for people listening to this, take a look at all the different food documentaries out there. Food Matters, uh, Forks Over Knives, uh, the one I just mentioned, you know, and take a look at how they're sourcing an audience and creating a movement. Or I'm sorry, joining a movement behind or, or building on the momentum of a movement with their movie. That's a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Listen, you got to get going. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time. And it definitely sounds like we have just tons of more stuff to talk about. And, and I hope to uh, grab you for a happy hour when I'm down in L.A. in hopefully the next couple of months here. I, I'd love that. Do, do you mind if I mention my website and have some people stop by? Do it, please. Go ahead. Um, for anybody that wants some more information on me, uh, my name is Jason Brubaker. And the website is filmmakingstuff.com filmmakingstuff.com and, and obviously check out Scott's website as well. He's going to have all sorts of valuable links, um, not the least of which is, is some of the, the products that I've put together. So uh, take some time to take a look at that too. Yeah, definitely. And I'll put this also in the intro and as well the outro. So I'll make sure we get you covered as much as possible. But thank you so hey. much for your time. I know you got to get jamming and uh, I'll follow up with you later. Hey, th this has been great. You know, I think we hit on some good stuff and this net neutrality. It's going to be remain to be seen, but let's all cross our fingers. And, and there are some things, you know, th that listeners can do. Um, certainly reach out to the FCC and yeah, reach out to them and let them know that you think it's a bunch of BS and hogwash and they 
they should really mind their P's and Q's. I don't know why I'm talking this way, but <laughs> anyway, thanks so much. All right, Jason, good luck in your meeting, and I'll follow up with you soon. Okay, talk to you Thank soon. Thank you. Bye. And again, that concludes my interview with Jason Brubaker of FilmmakingStuff.com. So please go check it out. I'll also have links in the show notes at FilmTrooper.com forward slash 29, since this is episode 29. And yes, I've been following Jason for a while now and have really uh, resonated with the messages that he's been sharing on FilmmakingStuff.com. And it's something I think all of us need to look into if you're going to become a filmmaking entrepreneur. And I hope to see that a lot of the things that he's been um, evangelizing come true. And I'm trying to apply a lot of the stuff he talks about with my own ventures with Film Trooper. Again, for those of you who have stayed this long to enjoy the podcast, I offer you a free gift, as always, over at freegearguide.com. And this is an equipment list of everything that I use to make a feature film with no crew. And again, that is at freegearguide.com. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to the Film Trooper podcast, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.